0: Welcome to Herbal Hour, the podcast for budding herbalists, plant enthusiasts, lovers of nature, and all things holistic medicine. Episode one, East meets West Herbs. Today we have with us creator of Modern Health Monk, with over a quarter million subscribers on YouTube, and author of Master of the Day, Eat, Move, and Live Better with the Power of Daily Habits. He's a lifestyle coach extraordinaire. Chinese medical student at National University of Natural Medicine, and my good friend Alexander Hein.
1: What's up? Thanks for having me here. Yeah. And by the th- way, you pronounced my last name wrong. It's actually a Hein. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, I'm lying. Very it's nice. Hein.
0: Yeah, so today we're just sitting here. We're drinking some puer tea. Uh, puer tea is delicious. I know you know a little bit about puer tea. Would you care to tell just- us about it?
1: You know honestly the crazy thing is I'm one of those weird people that just knows enough to be dangerous about what I want. I just know enough to know what I want. I don't know that much about Puar besides the fact that it's there's mainly two different types. There's like the fresh quote unquote fresh young, and then the ripened the darker one which is shu. I tend to just like the shu because that's like a lot darker. Um, it tends to be easier in digestion. It's a little bit more warming. So if you tend to have low appetite you tend to have a sensitive stomach, you definitely want to have the darker one. Mm. So,
0: Well, I don't know too much about tea, but I know it has a lot of caffeine, so I like it.
1: That's why we're cracked out right now. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. Just drinking tons of pu'er right now. That's it. Bringing you some good quality content today. Okay, so you wrote a book uh, on how people can change their lives. Why
1: do you think habits are so crucial to health? I think the big thing I think is that people want to change their life and they don't know how to bridge the gap between like where they are and where they want to be. And that can be dating. It could be, you know, I I never get into these good loving relationships. How do I get to there? It can be fitness. Like I need to lose 20 pounds or I want to gain 20 pounds. How do I get to there? I want to get out of this horrible debt, this financial situation. I'm here. How do I want to get there? And like, The getting there is the part where people like really, it's thorny and it's very messy. And I think for me, people need to understand that habits are really one of the most concrete ways to do that. Like no matter what material you end up studying or whatever material you apply, it's kind of, if you can understand psychological habits and physical habits, that's the whole game to me. Hmm. So what do you think is the main obstacle for people not
0: changing their habits? Because everyone understands that, you know, we are the sum of our habits, but why do We have habits that basically destroy our lives or that are not productive.
1: I think because we tolerate them. Basically, we tolerate getting bad results. Like we tolerate, like how is it that there are however many tens of thousands of diabetics getting their limbs amputated every year when they they saw the warning signs all along? Maybe they weren't 100% sure that that was dietary related, but like they see and the doctor's like, we're going to have to cut off your foot. Like, you're not going to, it's not going to grow back. Like, we're going to cut off your foot and then eventually above your knee and then your leg and you're going to die from this. And yet, mm. how, whatever that number is, it's like in the tens of thousands, it's like 30,000 people plus get limbs amputated. So like they intellectually know they have to change. And maybe even emotionally, they're like, I, I don't feel well. Emotionally, I don't feel well. And how is it that they can still not even change? So I think it's a matter of the inner psychology and the practical application But there's something in between, which is really where if we focus on that, that's where we can get the results. Because it's not just info. Almost everyone now in the internet age knows what to do or can find out what to do to achieve almost any goal. So if it's not information, like what is it? And I think that's what we're talking about, which is kind of really character. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, it's an interesting disease
0: because it's so related to diet and lifestyle. It's pretty much completely preventable right. from everything i understand but right. yet people you know people are getting their limbs cut off because of those
1: habits right and like mm. you know i think that people really only change through pain but sometimes mm. even pain's not great enough you know there's a guy there's a guy online called grant cardone and he's got all these sales materials and he's like a sales coach sales trainer and in his 20s he struggled a lot with addiction a lot with really hard drug use and for him He didn't change when he was hospitalized twice from using drugs. He didn't change when he was uh, beaten to a pulp by basically someone that he was doing deals with. The guy came into his house and beat him to hell. And the only time he changed, finally got clean, was when his mom said, I never want to see you again. So it's like, even threatened with death was not good enough, but it was like that excommunication that for him was like the strong enough emotional pain that finally got him cold turkey. Mm. And some people even have that and they don't change.
0: It's pretty remarkable. Humans are very interesting creatures. Mysterious. In that regard. So today our topic is Eastern and Western traditions of herbalism. So I'm studying naturopathic medicine mm-hmm. at UNM, as you know. And I'm very passionate, inspired about herbalism, especially the more traditional herbalism, not more scientific-based herbalism. Uh, and you're studying Chinese medicine. We're both in our last years. So what inspired you to pursue Chinese medicine?
1: Very unremarkable. It was for me, uh, I had lifelong digestive problems. Um, I saw a lot of doctors, even really from the age of 20 on, which is basically starting with a GI specialist diagnosis of IBS, which was really a misdiagnosis or diagnosis of exclusion. But a GI specialist, general practitioner, uh, even a nutritionist they sent me to, which is very surprising. It's at least, you know, redeeming a little bit. Um, but none of them got me any results. They were all good people. I liked them all. None of them got me any results. So here I am seeing like Ivy league trained physicians that are very confident of their opinions because what they were sharing were not really facts. They were sharing opinions and I just didn't get any results. And so for me, it was kind of like, then I went into this whole weird world of what so many patients do when they don't get results is I'm reading, uh, books independently written by physicians. I mean, even reading uh, physicians in the 1900s, their books, like um, Dr. Christopher, uh, or maybe was, uh, was he an herbalist or a naturopath? He has a whole line of like Dr. Christopher's, he had a whole herbal school. Hmm. Um, but for me, it was just a chance referral from a friend who had, uh, I think he had ulcerative colitis or uh, Crohn's, and uh, he was taking some drug because there was no other treatment, quote unquote, for him. And the drug actually caused that to morph into autoimmune hepatitis. And uh, when I saw him, he was so weak. He was 26. So weak, he couldn't even walk. He had to use uh, crutches or be in a wheelchair. And he said, you should check out this Chinese doctor, this guy named Jacques. He was like a French dude, but studied with a Chinese teacher. And sure enough, the first 30 days like of the herbs he gave me was the most regular bowel function of 30 years of my life. So it wasn't like he like, cured me a constitutional illness in 30 days. But I was like... If this was that easy for this guy, and I was like one of like 30 patients he saw that day, he had like 30 minutes of me. Why would I ever go back to studying with a... Why would I go back to the physician that was so confident and yet their advice didn't do anything? Mm. And then this guy not only could explain accurately in terms of Chinese medicine, but it actually worked. Most important to me, the patient. So then I was like... And I was really intrigued and it piqued my interest. That's interesting considering the fact that if you go on
0: Wikipedia... You search naturopathy. Disaster. You search Chinese uh, herbalism. I was actually just reading up on Chinese herbology. Yeah. And in the first sentence, it's pseudoscience. Right. And then it was explaining why we're not seeing effects with it. It's right. because it has no mechanism of action. So it's like pre-assumed that it is not effective. Right. So how, how do these systems of medicine, especially when they're more traditional based, mm-hmm. like folk herbalism or right. Chinese medicine... Where does that fit in the medical system when the medical system at large is incredibly dismissive? Right. And in spite of the fact that many conventional MDs uh, and practitioners can't really affect cures. Right. Chinese medicine docs and herbalists have been affecting cures, you know, for thousands of years. Right.
1: So what gives? What's up with that? Well, for one, there's a lot of bias on Wikipedia. So it's funny. A chance. It's very interesting you said that because just yesterday I looked at the wiki entry for acupuncture, and of course it was pseudoscientific, categorized as quackery. But it's all the same links to Stephen Barrett at watch <laughs> So if you're a scientist, you don't just cite one source, which is one dude, right? Like, let's be clear that there's it's just not just a little bias, but there's so much research on uh, on herbs for all kinds of illnesses. I mean, in Chinese medicine alone. Um, using herbal formulas as an adjunct therapy with chemotherapy. I mean, there's like 5,000 plus peer-reviewed citations showing the positive effect, like uh, chemo plus formulas, all the patients across the board perform better. So obviously he didn't cite any of those. But I think the big thing is with traditional medicines, from my understanding, you know, I'm a newbie, but a lot of it, first of all, especially chronic illness is almost all constitutional. That's a big thing. Like you, you don't even really hear constitution in modern medicine at all you know like it's just not a word but if you look at if you read um like Sir William Osler like these physicians from the 1900s 1800s they that's a really common word because it's like why is it one little Jimmy gets a cough and then that cough turns phlegmy and mucousy and he gets some chest pain while little Sally gets the same virus that's going around and yet she just gets a head cold and like a stiff neck and that consistently happens over years and years same virus, same exposure, what's the difference between the two people? You know, ancient people knew this really well. Not everyone had the same expression with the same pathogen going around. Um, And so I think that what you see in in, uh, traditional medicines is, first of all, there's more of an emphasis on constitutional medicine, especially when it's chronic. But even when it's acute, there's a big difference at uh, looking at individual symptoms versus looking at patterns. And I think that's Primarily because their whole way of life reflected that, right? Because they could see nature has a pattern. The sun always rises and then always sets. And then therefore we can predict and therefore have some kind of livelihood because we know if I get up at this time, that's when the deer is grazing. I can hunt the deer or I should plant in this month and harvest in this month. So therefore there's where there's that consistent of a system, you can then predict and you kind of know where you need to be. And medicine's no different. Mm. That, that is very
0: interesting. reading about uh, physicians, even Western physicians a year uh, like a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, they really practiced medicine. Yeah. they were look they understood science, they understood germ theory and that, but they were looking at general symptom pictures and they were developing their treatments uh, using herbs, even right even you know 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. this idea that a pharmaceutical or surgery is the only way to treat, is a very new development.
1: Right.
0: So it's, it's it's a very strange place we live in and it's, these days.
1: it's a big experiment. You know, even this week I had a patient had a spinal fusion, cervical spinal fusion, and then he said he saw his surgeon three years later and he said, uh, I hate to tell you it, uh, we don't recommend that procedure at all anymore. It's like, cool, now that you've done an irreversible procedure, you know, okay, like that's it? Like, sorry, we just kind of took something out, we can't put back. Like that's a very, you know, it's, it's kind of sad how quickly we resort to that, but mm-hmm. people often don't even know the options. They're not aware of them.
0: Right. And looking back into the history of medicine, it's always been the case that there was uh, practitioners of medicine that didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. They were just following the fad at the time, right. this kind of thing. Like back during Galen's time, it was just, you know, blood lead everybody. Yeah. There was a lot of good reason to blood lead in a therapeutic sense but then it got kind of overused right. or they started using mercury for everything because it became kind of cure all these days. It's like gallbladder removal or right. something. They just, the second that like you get right upper quadrant pain, yeah. like that's it. Your gallbladder is out. out. That's it. It's, it's gone. Yeah. Like even if it's treatable, even if it, there was certain causes that led to it. It's very mechanical based. It's it very, very like you have right. the problem there. We get rid of the thing that causes the problem, Right. but it loses focus on the fact that the gallbladder is an actual important organ in the body. Right. And in things like uh, Chinese medicine, it has f- functions considered that aren't simply physical. It has emotional, it has psychological aspects right. to it. So that's it's interesting times that we live in where the, the truth is like mocked and laughed at. Right. And just completely erroneous, dangerous methods are the standard. And I, you're a quack if you don't practice by those...
1: But I think, I think that's how it always is and how it'll always be. I mean, even during, like, I'm sure we'll get to it, but even during um, Zhang Zhongjing's time, writer of the Shang Han Lun or compiler, his half of that book was basically, uh, I'm trying to find a better word for it, but basically a commentary on the poor practices of physicians at the time. He wrote that book in 200 A.D., like that's 200 years after Christ. And already he was commenting on the low level practice of physicians. So here we are talking 2000 years later, and he was like, what most physicians do like is straight quackery, and that's the standard. But it's like anything, it's like, you could make that same comment about how most humans live their lives, right? We settle for jobs, we settle for partners, we settle for all this stuff. And yet, imagine just the how awesome life can get if you, for example, instead of settling, you do work you really love and that's really meaningful and then you work hard. Like that opens a door to a, a life that's unreal. So it's almost like, you know, in every era and even each domain of life, there's always the standard, which is almost always um, an unconscious standard. I mean, even physicians are just the most highly trained cogs and wheels. Most of them are not innovators or even or even critical thinkers, unfortunately. It's absolutely true in the, in the Western tradition of medicine
0: with people like Galen and Paracelsus, they were very outspoken to the medical practices of the time, and right. were basically saying that, oh, these, you know, these people doing divination—they don't understand that like medicine is like a science that you can study. Right. And that was Galen's big uh, contribution: is formulating a rational method of practicing medicine. But he was also very holistically minded. Right. Uh, when is term- Galen
1: two hundred? Yeah, about
0: there? yeah about so about same time same time interesting and paracelsus interestingly enough he was an incredible innovator now he's thought of as the founder of chemistry huh uh but he was an alchemist actually right
1: and most of these early physicians were in chinese medicine as well
0: yeah and during his time everybody was so caught up on galen it was just dogma it was this is what galen said and like this is what you learn and this is what oh. medicine is there's nothing else he was openly burning books of galen it was like he was like the Martin Luther of his time, just wow. openly burning like academic medicine books. You're
1: talking about Paracelsus?
0: Paracelsus. Wow. About, what was it? About 1300 years later. So
1: Paracelsus is that recent.
0: Yeah. He's pretty recent. Wow. Yeah. He's uh, medieval times.
1: Oh, wow. Interesting.
0: Yeah. But that's kind of interesting is that the, uh, the innovators always bring it to the next level. Right. When people start to become too reliant right. on a dogma because only Galen really understood his medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything that followed from it was just like an imitator, right? Kind of like a religion. Yep. Uh, like Jesus could be held to be an enlightened being or Buddha, uh, and certain followers wrote down their teachings, right. and then they followed the the teachings so closely, misinterpreted them, and then you know you have all these wars
1: and conflicts. Right. In Whereas those people w-
0: would be like, "What are you doing? Right? Did you even listen to anything I said?
1: Right. Right. Right."
0: It's it's fascinating. It is,
1: and it's what's interesting to me. There's a really interesting book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Really good book. I think Thomas Kuhn. Mm-hmm. He talks about how, really, all progress in science. This was an enlightenment moment for me. It all comes from individuals, and individuals. The reason for that is, in Chinese medicine, there's in ancient times there was no standardized medicine. So this idea of modern standardized Chinese medicine is like a watered down, let's teach you, let's teach as many people as possible to get some consistent results. But in ancient times, it was all your lineage. And Confucius is a quote. It's like, if they haven't had three generations of doctors in the family or something, I don't want to be treated by them. Because that illustrates in the lineage, like we know if you give this herb at that dose, you're going to kill the patient, right? And so it's just so interesting that what you see in Chinese medicine is what you see even in the scientific method. The scientific method is always pushed forward by individuals and never by institutions. It's almost always like it's Einstein and Max Planck and whoever in physics, or it's this person in chemistry. It's like that it's it made me a lot more confident in me proposing all my own theories mm. at any point in my life. Mm. Beginner, expert, anywhere in between, because it seems like it's always pushed forward by that one innovator that thinks differently. And sometimes You know, we still use formulas from 2000 years ago because that guy was so smart that he was so systematic in his thinking that there's still work like clockwork efficacy. Mm. I mean, that's shocking.
0: It's basically that person learned the best of the knowledge available to them from all the traditions. Right. And then they kind of took it to the next level. yep. And then everyone learned the next level, but then that became dogmatic and then they took it to the next level. So that's the progression of human knowledge. Right. So any tendency that scoffs at new ideas without really looking into them with an honest mind is limiting human progress essentially for sure it's but
1: but people feel safer that way right like the physician that denounces all alternative medicine you know from the jump i don't know what they're thinking maybe in their head they think alternative medicine they're thinking like praying away tumors you know, like... Although there's research for there that. There probably is research. Yeah, exactly. So it's like... But would I... If I grew a tumor, would I rely on... You know, if these ancient physicians thought that just dealing with the psycho-emotional alone was so effective that they wouldn't even need to do any other procedure or give an herbal formula, they probably would have done that. And yet, these best physicians in history still did everything. You know, still dealt with the physical on top of the psycho-emotional. But it's not surprising to me that... Um, you know, the quote unquote institution, whatever that is, rejects kind of these innovations. Cause it's just, it's just the human mind, you know, small mindedness is kind of human nature. I think it's, it makes us feel more secure if we think that we have
0: the answer right. and any questions to that kind of unravel our certainty and in medicine right. and in healing, all the healing arts, it's difficult. It's there's complex. No, there's there's not no much certainty. There's no really right answers. No, and there's
1: no guarantees. Right. You know, so that's the big thing. Like, medicine in particular has never been a field where there's really high guarantees for a lot of things. You know, there's like, you know, I feel very confident we can fix this or like 90% chance, but it's, it's, it's always going to kind of be the wild west. There's so much bio individuality. It's just like each body is a weather pattern mm. and like trying to predict the weather is crazy.
0: I think that's the role of these more holistic forms of medicine, right. uh, like Chinese medicine, traditional herbalism is they, they bring back that way of thinking based on patterns and really exemplify the art of medicine. Right. Where you're almost dealing with patterns and moving around energies in a way that you understand rather than you know just following this and that guideline. Right. That's based on uh, statistics. Okay. So when you're formulating something in Chinese medicine, mm-hmm. what kind of things
1: are you looking for in the patient to come up with an herbal formula? So... In regard to this question, there's a lot of different traditions that do different things. Um, I'll share specifically the one I'm kind of mentoring under. So typically what you're looking for, I mean, the pulse has been such a foundation of Chinese medicine. But it's almost like the more inexperienced you are, the more you need multiple confirming signs and symptoms. Mm -hmm. So it's like this pulse with this body symptom, like this pulse with low appetite they feel cold. They look more pale as opposed to a little bit of color in the face. And they have, you know, dizziness. That's probably enough for me to give a formula with this herb called fooling or something. So the more experienced you get, the more you can look at one piece of the body and accurately predict the whole piece. So that's where you get into these, like, stories of, like, the pulse masters. Um, like, in my lineage, there's a doctor named Dr. Tien who was so skilled with the pulse. And this is, like, a real human, right? Like, this guy lived... He, Died in maybe the early to mid-1900s, lived to be 97, saw up to 300 patients a day for almost his whole life, like 70 years continuous. Always in a bad mood, grumpy dude, because he just would have you know, a patient on each side and then two assistants on each side. And he could even modify the formula based on the pulse. And when the patient would begin to s- explain the symptoms, he'd say, stop talking, I need to concentrate. And this is not like a guy 2,000 years ago where we're like, this is probably BS. This is a guy, I have a picture of his face, We know his one of his main students, like both my mentors, uh, you know, at the school here, I've studied with him. So, like, these are like the real stories. This is the truth. And the point is, his skill was so advanced that from that small sliver, just the pulse, he could prescribe a formula with very high accuracy. Mm. To the point where he was like the famous village doctor with, I mean, literally 300 people a day. That's like a five-minute, or two-minute. Who knows? Pulse visit, and then you tell your assistant. They need this formula minus this herb plus that herb next. And so that's like the more mastery, the more you can look at one piece to accurately predict the whole. But as a beginner, what we need is, for example, we would use the pulse, we'd use body symptoms, uh, abdominal diagnosis. And then from there, probably just looking at the overall constitution. So examples would be uh, facial coloring. So like people like me are like, I'm prone to being very pale. If I miss a night of sleep, I get very, very pale, very kind of gaunt looking. Um, That is very helpful to predict where I am and what kind of herbs are good for me and what are not. Like looking at you, and I know you, you're prone to having more like warmth or heat symptoms, including your face. You're more prone to facial flushing than I am. I feel hot right now. Yeah, and I'm perfect right now. So that by itself is, that indicates some aspect of constitution or just the current, you know, homeostasis. So really, I would say most practitioners probably rely on uh, some aspect of the subjective from the patient, some aspect of the quote objective, which is abdominal palpation, pulse or physical channel palpation. Um, and then whatever else is in their training. Mm. So now how do you translate that
0: pulse or that complexion of someone's face to what herb you'll prescribe? Mm -hmm. Is it like you feel the pulse and the pulse is wiry And wiriness indicates this organ dysfunction. And this is the herbal formula for that organ dysfunction.
1: So there's typically, there's a lot of ways to do it. But what I'm noticing is that each practitioner has their style. And the the frustrating thing is, even among the great physicians, like, you know, when you get to pathology and uh, there's just a lot of layers of pathology, like, you know, you have to treat one thing first, like, let's say you have a diabetic patient um, and they have acid reflux they obviously need to lose probably 40 to 50 pounds to feel really good. And they're starting to get just some uh, edema on their legs. And you're Mm -hmm. like, all right, there's a lot here. Like we're not, we can't tackle one thing at a time. So typically many physicians will disagree what you even start with on that. So what we're looking looking for most of the time is that usually one pulse quality, like wiry or deep and weak. um, Like for example, a case I had in the clinic was a woman, a middle-aged woman, um, her pulse was almost non-existent. It was just, you pushed onto the bone, nothing. I mean, it's just like, like last, last gasp of air. Uh, and her chief complaint was body pain. That by itself, strict indication for aconite, for fuzi. So we knew, okay, but that's just the herb, single herb, and we never give a single herb. So what's the formula? And I think the doctor gave her tang, which is a... Just the, uh, I don't know the individual herbs right now, but usually the pulse by itself can indicate a whole bunch of different formulas. So you're looking for, this is the reason why like yin and yang are so important in Chinese medicine. It's actually very clinical. It's not like, I mean, it's a, it's a made up concept, but for example, you have like floating pulses are more yang and you have like the, you push to the bone and you can't feel anything. That's more yin. And so based on your knowledge of where the person is and the facial color and the symptoms, you can kind of assess the formula from there.
0: Mm. That's, that's fascinating. So in my studies of uh, Chinese medicine, a little bit theory, and also Western herbalism, there's a lot of similarities from the more traditional perspective. Mm-hmm. So we look at things like energetics. Is the person's condition, is it hot or cold? Is it damp or is it dry? Mm-hmm. This system actually comes from uh, Galen and before that, the Greek physicians. Well, it's kind of developed over time. It became the uh, humor theory
1: mm-hmm. of
0: like bile and uh, you know black bile and sanguine personalities and and things of that nature.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but it's similar in that regard, where you use you first you determine the condition of the person's body. So let's say somebody they have a lot of you know, runny discharges from their nose and they're getting like a lot of chills because they have some kind of fever, um, the conventional approach is oh, you just give them a you know, something to stop the fever, one. Yeah. And then you give them something to stop the cough. Basically
1: you like decongestion it's, or something. Yeah. Or
0: like a it's directly like symptomatic relief focused. Right. And you know, no symptoms, no disease, right? It right. makes no sense at all. It doesn't exist. No. <laughs> <laughs> so um in the Western tradition, which is similar to the Chinese herbalism tradition, mm-hmm. you select an herb that counters that energy. So if somebody has um you know, a cold, they feel chills, they have a runny nose, we call that uh, a condition that's cold and wet, right? And maybe they have some kind of discharges from their GI and, and things like that. So right. something like ginger. So ginger has a lot of specific actions, but energetically speaking, ginger is very heating, it's very warming, right? Uh, and it's very drying. And it's specific to mucous membranes, specific to the GI tract. So you it's like you figure out what Uh, condition the person has and then you deal with it with that herb Mm. so things like cold conditions are like decreased activity they feel chills things like that Um, and (laughs) and dampness is like mucus discharges things like that so there is a tradition in western herbalism that is nearly identical to Mm. chinese herbalism although i would say that uh, chinese herbalism took it farther Mm. And they, they focused more on it. Whereas Western herbalism kind of, uh, fell off with the advent of pharmaceuticals and it was kind of more or less, uh, forgotten, but that system still, that still exists.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, it's, I think it all starts with, so in Chinese medicine, it is the herbs by themselves are what's called the chi and the way that you essentially have like the flavor and the nature. And then the, so the, with the flavor, it's like the sweet, sour, salty, bitter, all that stuff. And then the, the, you know from hot to very cold. and But even that is just one layer, because even that is, there's hot and cooling herbs you only use in certain, um, they're called like the jiao, the, the Jowl triple warmer. There are certain herbs you that only really have this affinity for a certain part of the body too. Mm. So it's like, then you have layers, and then you also have stages of disease. Mm. So then there's a trip, it's like, so it really is simple at a glance, but gets really sophisticated. So the layer and the depth of the disease you have to use different medicinals. So for example, if it's the surface, like let's just say the qi layer, you can't use if the person is, um, let's just say we have a woman who's struggling with infertility, right? And the Chinese medicine diagnosis is it's like cold in the uterus, cold in the lower jowl. You can't, you often are not using the same herbs for the upper or middle as you are for the lower. So then you have to figure out what's the depth of it. And that's what, you know, that's where the, the training comes in. For the triple
0: burner or the jowls, as you're talking about, uh, is that a physical structure or is that a metaphorical explanation of some kind of process in the body?
1: Yeah. So it describes physiology. It's not a physical structure. It's mm. the one organ. I think it's the only one organ that's described as having a function but no form. And people have tried to figure out what what it is. Um, I've heard it's like the interstitium. I've heard of all kinds of terms. Um, but basically, these early doctors observed that there's a separate function to this. And, but there's no, there's actually no organ associated with it.
0: Mm. It's interesting what you say about the specificity of the organ, Mm. because that also exists in the traditional Western herbal approach. Mm. So the first thing you determine is the energetics. So kind of like the hot, cold, damp, dry. And then there's even more complexity to that because Mm. there's degrees to it. And they, uh, they symbolize different manifestations of symptoms. Mm. Then there's also the, what they call the specificity of seat or the location that the herb mostly works. Right. So it would be like hot liver and you would give, you know, somebody a a cooling herb that works specifically on the liver. Mm. And then there's a third level of specification, which is the specific indication. So that actually, the eclectics developed this in great details. They were uh, physicians in the early 1900s. Mm. They're basically the holistic MDs of the time. A lot of them actually were MDs. Wow. They kind of, you know, went under with the Flexner Report. Yeah. Ever. As all, all alternative medicine yeah. got kind of screwed. If you guys want to look into the Flexner Report <laughs> yeah. and Rage, just go ahead and, and Google it and, and see why actually our, our healthcare system is so terrible yep. today. It's Something a lot monopolized. of that. yeah. Yeah. So they had this, this system of specific indications and these were constellations of symptoms. Mm. They were a whole, a holistic constellation of symptoms that would specifically indicate one herb or substance. Right. So it would be like, you use this herb, let's say aconite, uh, when they have, you know, a runny nose, and they also have stomach pain, but they feel hot all the time, but they have a cough, and you know, their their pulse is very deep, and they actually looked at pulses too. Mm. They looked at them in very depth. They didn't. That's cool. They didn't really have metaphorical ways to explain the pulse like Chinese medicine does. They Mm -hmm. were more, they were very empirical. Mm -hmm. They were more like this pulse. I felt it on 20 people that had this exact disease. I'm going to say that that pulse is associated with that disease. And when I gave them this herb, that pulse went back to normal. So I'm going to say that this herb actually goes along with that pulse. So they were very empirical. They didn't really care about theory. Mm -hmm. They learned science. They learned physiology and all that. They kind of threw it away and just practiced with the person in front of them. One of the fascinating things about their approach, and this might trigger some people, but in a lot of cases, they didn't really care what the patient had to say. That's, well, you see that a lot in experienced Chinese doctors too. They didn't care about the, the, the history or what they were experiencing. Their method of medicine was, I observe these signs and this is what I give. Yep. And it was thought to be that we don't really understand our own illnesses. So a lot of right. our explanations of our illness can be misleading you know people have
1: the stories, stories the stories are dangerous and usually the worse off the patient is, is doing the, the longer the story the deeper the story one of my mentors says that in terms of like depletion if you view like a very 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 weak pulse as like a person who's seriously depleted energetically or whatever you want to call it in terms of vitality just feeling well that person will often have the longest story and so that's where it's like that was a very interesting lesson for me just um a lot of the best physicians, they just kind of half listen because they know the, they know the, the pulse doesn't lie. They know the symptoms are telling that, you know, they're the canaries and they know they have the experience to be like, this pulse, these symptoms, we know what to do to get you better. It's a pr- pretty fascinating system.
0: Uh, yeah. A lot of times, you know, doctors don't listen to patients, but for another reason. Right. Is they're just too busy, you know, right? they're just going to send off to imaging. I mean, yeah, we have machines that can look in your body. Why would we need to take right. your pulse? Right. Right. Sometimes I wonder why we even take blood pressures of everybody.
1: Yeah, but but I think also the big difference in um, traditional medicines is they're focused on physiology and not form. That's the difference now, where we're really focused on form, like send them to get digital imaging. Like, oh, you got a tumor, you know, like there's no, you know, there's not much else paid attention to. Or, oh, yeah, look at your, you know, your cartilage in your hip. It's like you have an inch less in your left hip, you should get a hip replacement, you know, or like look at this oh wow they must have pain because of the digital imaging and yet that's not true for every person with pain so it's it's interesting that um
0: well that's one of the foundational dogmas of physiology right is that structure follows function and vice versa right? always that if there's something wrong you should be able to see a structural change mm. but that's but, actually not necessarily but it's true, not really true because in yeah. what
1: in what time scale and yeah. that's why the, i think a big thing in chinese medicine the concept of qi, is a, a humongous innovation because if you can treat things far before they show up on imaging and most of our patients have stuff that doesn't show up like their blood works fine the imaging is fine and yet they have anxiety attacks palpitations they have all these things that don't show up on ekgs but they are self-reporting they don't feel well and a doctor the low-level physician will be like okay i'm going to send you to the shrink because it's stress well, okay, yeah, okay, well, we all have stress, but that's a very low-level explanation. But we can treat those far before they, they ever show up on an EKG or something.
0: It's such a common case. You know, so, someone comes like in, half our they think they're, they're having a heart attack. They go to the ER. Yeah. You know how often that is? And then they get sent home. Oh, nothing's wrong with right. their heart. Or it's reflux. Uh, or did that or help it's... the person at all? Right. Now they're just even more anxious because they're having panic attacks. And it's like, at least if it was a heart attack, it's like, all right, well, you know, it's treatable. I have a heart problem. I'm going to have to change my life. But they basically send you off on your way. Like, nothing's wrong with you, actually. It's all in your head.
1: Now it's the enemy you don't know and you can't even see. Now it's a ninja.
0: And then they say things like, oh, it's stress. But like you said, everybody experiences stress. Why are some people having panic attacks and can't function in life because of stress? And we can treat that easily. That's the the question. I think the right questions aren't being asked. It's being... uh, the argument is being prematurely closed. Right. They're coming to a very weak general diagnosis and then kind of sending them off. And yeah. that's why, you know, these people flounder around. A lot of the patients we see at our clinics are people who've been, you know, to ten yeah. ten different doctors and they some gave him IBS, some gave him fibromyalgia, this that. So and just gave him Prozac. And yeah, some just gave him Prozac, like go home, <laughs> go home. Stop, Stop telling me about your problems. Yeah, I only have
1: up. three minutes. Yeah, exactly. I have three minutes. I'm not, you not like a me to listen or write a script for Prozac in those <laughs> <Yeah>. three minutes. <laughs> it's completely, it's completely
0: backwards. Yep. So some differences that I noticed between uh, Chinese medicine and uh, and Western medicine is one there's a focus in Chinese medicine of using formulas and yep. synergy. Yep. Whereas in Western medicine, uh, Western herbalism specifically, it's more of a focus on finding specific herbs. And sometimes you'll use two or three herbs together. Any Anything to say on that matter?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. One, I don't even have a damn clue how they figured that out. Like how how you could have figured that out, I have no idea. Um, but what I do know is I would never risk using a single herb now because we don't know how they really work in Chinese medicine. We don't... because a lot of our formulas, you have the chief herb and you have the assistants and deputies and all this stuff, and those often offset toxicity. And so we use a lot of toxic herbs that <clears throat> when you put them in a lab or you know, look at the biomedical studies, this herb is toxic and causes liver cancer, liver failure. Okay, if you give the herb alone, unprocessed, without the other herbs in the formula, sure, it causes liver failure. You know, But uh, the other herbs are often offsetting toxicity, and what you see, particularly in the lineage that that I'm prescribing in the Shanghan Lun, more than sixty five percent of the formulas have like the same five herbs, which are all protecting digestion, mm. which is very interesting. You know, you have like the try um, to translate them all, jujube. You have gansai licorice. You have uh, you often have like ginger, one of the ginger variations, and those are all protecting the middle, which is really the stomach and digestion. One part, that's because you have to literally digest these formulas. Some are very, very thick. Um, but that's interesting. Just looking at statistics, why wouldn't the majority have that? And I think that's because they understood, number one, you have to always protect that. But that it, it offers some aspect of buffering or lowering toxicity or making it a little bit less direct. Mm. And also in Chinese medicine, the less herbs, it's considered a large formula, a stronger formula. The more herbs, is considered a weaker formula. Because the less herbs, you're going to see much more directionality. You're going to see effects right away. And if you prescribe wrongly, you're going to see side effects right away. Mm. The more f- herbs in the formula, it's kind of like the safer. So you see in later in Chinese medicine history, there are like 20 herb formulas, 30, 50 herb formulas. And those are formulas that take, like, can take months to see the effects of. Mm. And if you get it wrong, like, you don't even really know. Was it, the, was it the formula?
0: So those ones are more like low dose herbs, but in synergy. Mm-hmm. Because if you are doing a complex formula of 20 herbs, it's not realistic to do 5 grams of each herb. So right. small amounts of the herbs are used for some kind of synergistic effect. Yeah, That's actually a defining difference between Western herbalism and uh, Chinese herbalism. Right. Is that Western herbalism does focus on one herb and in higher doses. Mm-hmm. I mean there's many different schools of thought. There's the homeopathic school which believes in very, very low dose. Right. And a lot of homeopathics are actually derived from herbs. Most of them mm-hmm. originally. And toxic substances. Right. It's originally why they were made into homeopathics yeah. because you can't really exactly give people mercury anymore. Right. But if you make it or into homeopathic. You? Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> Questionable. They, yeah. I mean, Hort, people get, 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 with guys. People get away with worse. People get away with worse. Yeah.
1: Yeah. People definitely get away with worse. Yeah. Yeah. But what, so what's the standard dosage of an herb in Western herbalism?
0: It depends on the uh, preparation form, of okay. course. But uh, for tinctures, the typical dosage is a milliliter three times a day or something like that. So what about bulk? What about
1: your cooking the herbs on the stove and drinking decoction? They're usually, it depends on which
0: one, okay. but they're going to be between five or 10 grams. It's similar in that regard to uh, dosages that you would see in, in Chinese medicine herbs, right. like the way that ginger or licorice or cinnamon would be used, which they are using Western herbalism as well. Yeah. Uh, they would be used in much higher doses because right. they are more like spice herbs. They're Your body can handle them well. They're not toxic herbs like aconite, which can kill you if you take too much of it. Yeah,
1: one gram raw will kill you. That's crazy. You have to imagine that. And we do use, you know, some formulas have three grams raw, like gently prepared. So it's, yeah, you got to really know. Now, we were talking about this
0: before. The difference in formulations. Mm. So Chinese medicine uses a lot of uh, granulations like powdered herbs. And use a lot of decoctions or boiling herbs for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas Western herbalism tends, at at least nowadays, it tends to use things like tinctures, teas, just steep teas, um, things like that. Why do you think there's this difference in how it's even prepared, the herbs?
1: You know, that I honestly don't know. I don't know why. I think a lot of Chinese herbs just have some aspect of toxicity. And I think tincturing really draws out the alkaloids. Um, but I think the the primary method throughout history really has been largely decoctions and still with acute illness, we'll often give a bulk, you know, the formula that they will go home and boil. We'll still give that to a lot of patients. Um, but it's really compliance. I mean, as far as granules go, it's basically, you know, uh, one of my mentors says that he prefers granules now because it's almost like you get a nice Italian tomato and at least, you know, they're canning it right when it's fresh. As opposed to shipping it from Italy, it's sitting on a cart and a boat or a plane for however long. We don't know how fresh it is. At least if you're doing a granule, it's going to be prepared fresh right away. But I don't know why we don't use tinctures. Mm. I, that I don't know. I wonder if that's something, some way that
0: uh, Western traditions and Eastern traditions can learn from each other mm. in using each other's preparation methods and even wisdom about the effects of herbs. Right. Because through this common link of plant energetics... I believe the connections are all there. It just is up for someone to interpret them uh within those systems because yeah. here's an interesting fact that I read online it completely blew my mind. So there's archaeological evidence that people were using medicinal herbs 60,000 years ago. Wow. 60,000 years That's ago. A lot of years of transmission. And the first like written down recorded medical systems are, you know, early BC. Right. Uh, and maybe 2000 or 3000 BC for some Chinese medicine things. Yeah. But you got to think there might've been 56,000 years of more herbal practice right. of just passing down uh, remedies.
1: Right. So that's like, you know, with the Shang Han Lun and Zhang and Jing and 200, whatever AD, I think it was, if you imagine, he was just also compiling a lot of the stuff that came before him. So his work, a lot of it came from a book called the Tang Ye Jing, which is like the decoction classic so who compiled these and first of all they're already in formulas so someone or some group or some thousands of years who knows already had compiled formulas and not only were they in formulas they were already with documented patterns for the all the major organ dysfunctions so it's like who no one really knows how far back it goes
0: that blows my mind when you when you look at a writer from you know 1 ad or something or 200 bc right and he says something like this is the tradition from the ancients that we don't even have that much information about anymore.
1: Right. And, but it works, which is the craziest part.
0: And it's fascinating too, that a lot of, uh, different primate animals will self treat medicinally with herbs. Mm. So it's, this isn't purely even a human invention. Right. This is almost an instinctual, uh, way of healing yeah. that might even be in our, our DNA and in our instincts right. to, to seek herbs. So one more, uh, one more question. What's a great physician story that, that you know of, of? Like a great physician in the Chinese medical tradition.
1: Great physician story.
0: There was that one you were telling me about. There was this plague that ravaged some town. And uh, this Chinese physician was just healing everybody. And that's basically how he learned herbalism. He was actually able to prevent oh, mass peoples of dying. Well, that
1: was Zhang Zhongjing. I mean, the writer of the, or the compiler of the Shang Lun, I think he said in this preface, like, 70% of his, his, like, family clan had died in this period of, I think it was over decades, that was this plague, this influenza or whatever it was going around, and that was what, like, he wrote the dedication to be, like, a lot of these physicians, when they get ill, when they're struck down, they go to soothsayers and diviners, and all these people trying to get, like, they're wondering what, why this misfortune, rather than having the medical skill to actually know why they got ill and know how to treat those things. And it was kind of like, my this work here is dedicated to, you know, because whatever, two-thirds of my family clan had died, and this is, I dedicated my life to solving this problem in medicine, and this book is like what I've passed on. And it was just, um, I don't know if there's a story about him or some other physician, but the famous story about him was that he noticed like something about this guy's eyebrows falling off and he's like in 20 years you're going to get this illness and if you don't take this medicine you're going to have this and the guy's like what are you talking about and sure enough the guy actually got that illness and so this is I'm pretty sure it's about Zhang Yongjing but this idea of like such a high level understanding of physiology that that one micro system part of like this person's body could accurately predict what was you know, uh, out of homeostasis, out of balance, like 20 years ahead of time. And that's kind of one of those legendary stories passed down. He wrote the uh, Shang Hong Lun, right? The Treatise on Treatment of Cold Disease? Cold cold damage, yeah. Mm. That's a
0: pretty foundational text of uh, classical Chinese medicine, right?
1: Basically, any famous herbalist has studied that book. That's Mm. like the go-to. And it's not just, um, you know, the other half is uh, all about really... I mean, the whole thing is really about internal medicine, but the first half's about things you contract externally and the second is about internal damage basically from it's like an internal medicine uh, textbook.
0: So a physician story I was reading about. Yeah
1: this let's about, hear it. This is about Galen. Oh nice.
0: Uh, so some background information. He was a Greek physician that lived in the Roman Empire mm-hmm. uh, around 200 AD when is when he was most active. The story of how he became a physician is fascinating. <laughs> So one day, his his father, who was quite wealthy, a uh, good part of society, he had a dream one night where the god of healing, Greek god of healing, Asclepius, came to him and commanded him to make his son a physician.
1: Damn.
0: Yeah. He woke up in the morning. He told his son, you're going to become a physician. This is when he was still very young. He was maybe a teenager or something like that. Wow. He sent him on this path uh, and he studied all the greats like Hippocrates um, and other physicians before him. And he traveled the land and learned of many things. And he basically founded what would later become modern medicine. Wow. 2,000 years ago. But it all started from a dream from his father.
1: That's nuts.
0: It's pretty, that's pretty remarkable, right?
1: It's like that footnote. This was once revealed to me in a dream. (laughs) Yeah. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine
0: if his dad was like, Ah, eh, that dream doesn't have any meaning. Yeah, uh, that's
1: whack. <laughs> One of the greatest
0: like innovators of all of medicine right. would have just been, I don't know, like a fisherman or something. Yeah, just hung exactly. out on boats. So uh, thank you for coming in today, Alex. Yeah, it's uh, always a pleasure talking with you. We always get deep on some philosophy topics, uh, we'll but to this riff. time we happen to have recorded it. So yeah. So can you tell our audience what's a good place to find your material and what you're working on these days?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you want to learn more about really the aspects of Chinese medicine, you can go to alexhine.com, which is H-E-Y-N-E. Uh, otherwise, if you want to go to Amazon, you can check out my book, Master of the Day, if you're into habits and that kind of stuff. Um, and that's the gist of it. Mm. You
0: were doing some kind of business course uh, uh, recently, right? Yep. Is that still
1: open for people? Uh, it's not. But if you go to, um, I'm trying to think... What's the URL? If you go to alivebusinessmastery.com, you can put yourself to the wait list there, which is kind of the fusion of, uh, for lack of a better word, intuition, kind of intuition, gut feelings, uh, I dare say manifesting, where that meets like hardcore business, uh, specifically online audience building. Mm. So if that resonates, you can go there. Mm. And your website, uh, what is that? Modern Health Monk? Yep. ModernHealthMonk.com.
0: All right. Thank you for stopping by, man.
1: Yeah. Thank you